hope that the whole lecture series will help Nebraskans, you know, students and faculty at the university and uh, others in uh, the entire state of Nebraska to have a better appreciation of the uh, importance of China in the contemporary world, uh, including particularly the importance of China uh, for the United States. The greatest strength between the U.S. and China, I think, is developing respect and the fact that we are now joining together to share and to try to understand each other better. I think the relationship between China and the United States can affect me a lot. For example, if I go back to uh, China to work and if there are um, more cooperations going on between the two countries, but uh, it will be um, much more chances for me to find jobs. China is a great country. Uh, it's rich in history and uh, um, culture. And I uh, wish uh, everybody has a chance to go to China to see itself. Oh, the friendliness of the people. It never ceases to amaze me how friendly and hospitable they are. My greatest hope for China is I want to see uh, it become a strong and powerful nation and also be respons responsible both internally and externally to its people and also to other nations around the world. You know, if I was to say something to the leadership of both the U.S. and China, it would be, you know, don't fear each other. We, we have nothing to fear from each other, we need to be partners, not opponents in any way. 欢迎来到伊恩·汤森国际事务论坛，让内布拉斯加更了解世界。Good evening. Uh, I am Lloyd Ambrosius, the Samuel Clark Wall uh, Distinguished Professor of International Relations in the Department of History at the University of Nebraska. Uh, it is my uh, pleasure as chair of the program committee uh, to welcome you to this E.N. Uh, e. Thompson Forum on uh, World Issues. Uh, this forum, uh, founded by and named in honor of E.N. Uh, Jack Thompson, is designed to engage Nebraska students as well as all Nebraskans in important issues affecting us in the contemporary world. We are grateful to the Thompson family and the Cooper Foundation for their continuing generous support for this lecture series. We are also thankful to the LEAD Center for its partnership with the Thompson Forum and the Nebraska Educational Telecommunications uh, Cable Channel 21 uh, KRNU Radio and the University of Nebraska for their support. This year, we are focusing on various aspects of encountering China. Tonight's lecture, Shouting Across the Chasm, Chinese and American Netizens Clash in Cyberspace by Kaiser Kuo, is also a Lewis Harris Lecture on Public Policy. The Harris Lecture was created to examine major public policy issues 
and to provide a special opportunity for interaction between students, the business community, and the academic community in Nebraska. The annual Harris Lecture was endowed by the Smith-Klein Corporation to honor its former chairman, the late Lewis E. Harris, founder of the Harris Laboratories, one of the world's leading independent scientific testing and research laboratories. Before introducing our speaker, I would like to remind you of our next lecture uh, for, this for this season. Dr. Susan Shirk will speak on the topic, China, Fragile Superpower, on Thursday, November 12th, uh, here at the LEAD Center at 7 p.m. At the conclusion of tonight's lecture, you will have the opportunity to ask questions of our speaker. Please write down your questions on the cards provided and pass them to the ushers. Now, it is my honor to introduce Mr. Kaiser Kuo. Born in the United States to Chinese parents, he lives in China and identifies equally as American and Chinese. Formerly Director of Digital Strategy for the Beijing Office of a Global Advertising Agency, he has also worked as a technology and business writer uh, for publications such as Time, Time Asia, uh, China Economic Review, Asia Inc., uh, and the South China Morning Post. He currently serves as an advisor for the Yuku.com, uh, a leading uh, video sharing company in China. He also co-founded China's most famous rock band, Tang Dynasty, and continues to be active in the Chinese music scene. Let us welcome Kaiser Kuo. Thank you, Lloyd, for that very warm introduction. Good evening to you all, and my very deepest thanks to you all for inviting me here tonight to uh, honor me for this this very, very august lineup of speakers that you have, including uh, some people that I've admired from afar for a very long time, Susan Shirk, the author of a book, one of my favorite China books, uh, China, a Fragile Superpower, will be here next month, I understand, and uh, I'm tempted to stick around in Lincoln just to see that. Um, the people here in Lincoln that I, I've met since I've arrived have demonstrated to me very amply the pride that they feel in their city is very well deserved and uh, I think they have a very clear sense of who they are. It also really encourages me to see a series like this being put together. It encourages me that uh, I'm not alone in believing. I see that all of you come here, uh, who've come here tonight probably share the belief that I have that the bilateral relationship between China and the United States is and will continue to be the most important that we will face in the rest of our lives. It's going to be full of opportunities. It's also going to be certainly full of challenges, many of which will be very difficult, I think, to overcome. I'd like to speak tonight about something that's been weighing very heavily on my mind, but something which we don't often think about in the context of the strict bilateral relationship, and that is the impact of the internet on Sino-American relations. We hear an awful lot about the internet in China, 
When you speak of the internet in China, what most Americans probably come up with first to mind is the word censorship. The Great Firewall of China, as Beijing's elaborate system of internet censorship has been dubbed, often makes the news. After all, and, and that's not surprising. It should not be surprising that that should make the news. Americans, uh, myself included, of course, are, are cherish freedom of speech. We cherish our freedom of expression. It's, it's very much a, a central, central fiber of our, of our political culture. And that the press should report on this is no surprise either because media people really are in the front lines. They're in the trenches uh, when it comes to freedom of speech issues. So it shouldn't surprise any of us that they should be concerned about it. But besides censorship, we also regularly read about the Chinese internet as some sort of breeding ground for strident Chinese nationalists. Some of you may have recently heard about cyber espionage networks, uh, the so-called ghost net, as it was dubbed by its discoverers, in which the Chinese government may or may not have had a hand. But you also read in the papers about nationalistic, or as they prefer to be called, patriotic hackers who attack or deface sites of organizations they deem to have, in some way, defamed China. So that's one set of impressions that Americans often have about the internet in China, tightly controlled by the government and crawling with angry young people with an inordinate fondness, ironically, for that very government that's doing the controlling. In the technology crowd, among the Silicon Valley, Sand Hill Road venture capitalists, among the Wall Street investors, among the fund managers, you also hear an awful lot about the internet in China. Those folks tend to talk a lot about China's fabled 338 million internet users, or about the 700 million or more mobile users in China, many of whom are beginning to access the internet through their mobile devices. They smell economic opportunities, understandably. They pay a lot of attention to the portals and the major game companies and to the various internet sites from China that have managed to get listed on the NASDAQ or on the New York Stock Exchange or on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Some of these are some very, very high-flying sites uh, with market caps of $25 billion or more in some instances. These guys can talk a real blue streak about the trials and the travails of American internet companies who are trying to make it in China and all the difficulties that they faced in trying to make a name for themselves in that fabulously difficult potentially very lucrative market. These are perhaps the two main facets of the West's understanding of the Chinese internet, but unless we happen to be people who read Chinese and have maybe spent a good deal of time actually engaged with the internet in China, our understanding of what's really going on is frankly bound to be quite limited. I don't think that's anyone's fault. I, I know next to nothing about the Russian internet or the internet as it is in in Italy, or in India, or in Iceland, or Portuguese-speaking Latin America, or, or anywhere. But when it comes to our important bilateral relationships, the, the one where the internet plays perhaps the most conspicuous role is in our relationship with China. Separating Chinese and Americans, separating Chinese and all Anglophone Westerners, there is a yawning, still widening chasm in one that continues to widen with, with, with the increasingly frequent and I fear ever more vicious encounters that we're having with one another online. 
Our mutual misunderstandings as expressed as individual citizens online is contributing, I'm afraid, to a dangerous, precipitous decline in relations at a people-to-people -people level. Not necessarily yet at a bilateral government-to-government -government level, but at a people-to-people -people level. And this is happening uh, at a time when public opinion is more important in shaping policy than it ever has been before, not only here in the West, where it's always been an important part of policy shaping, but also in China. In China, it's how this divergent and fractured internet culture is driving this decline that I'm speaking of that I'd really like to focus my remarks on this evening. I suppose I should start with an overview of the internet in China, something that probably not a lot of you are overly familiar with. Is it really that different from the internet that we have here? At first blush, it's fair to say that there's an awful lot of behavioral overlap especially when you look at younger American or other Anglophone internet users. Chinese may use instant messaging more than Amer their American counterparts do. They may use email considerably less than their Anglophone counterparts do. They tend perhaps to congregate more on BBSs or bulletin board systems, internet forum and, and the like, which are regarded as rather passe among many Americans. But in other respects, well, the Chinese have their social networks. We have our social networks. The Chinese have their internet video sites, their blogs, their micro-blog sites like Twitter, which has been so very much in the news of late. And of course, they have their online games, just as we have our online games. So none of us are, are, are perhaps too far away in our understanding of, uh, of, of the Chinese internet. There's a lot of common ground. Of course, China, like the United States, has its own universe of oddball characters who enjoy ephemeral, fortunately, ephemeral celebrity or notoriety. They have an ever-growing lexicon of internet slang that often finds its way into common parlance, and of course it has its memes, these discrete cultural units that for a while, for a week, for a month, capture the zeitgeist in China, and which occasionally draw the amused attention of the Western media. Sometimes the way that a meme will spread through the Chinese internet with particular virulence, it'll go viral very, very quickly, may say something about Chinese society or about the Chinese polity. But, um, you know, generally, as silly as some of them are, I think we can just sort of disregard them as harmless elements of uh, an intriguing uh, Chinese internet culture. In some of the talks that I've given earlier today and, and last night, I, I've been able to, to talk through some of these very uh, amusing memes that have developed on the Chinese internet scene. Over the last decade, the internet has really pushed aside most other media in China to become the real crucible of contemporary Chinese popular culture. It's now the place where new music is, 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 is popularized. It's where new language is born. It's where many of the writers, the poets, all the, the, the men of letters who, marry, who matter, it's where they're cutting their teeth on the internet today. It was once commonplace, and I, I still think it's, it's in, in some parts true, to talk about the Chinese internet as being more entertainment superhighway than information superhighway. And as I say, I, it does remain true, and I have used that turn of phrase on many an occasion from not long after its introduction into China in the late 1990s, it has really offered 
the most bang for the buck in terms of entertainment. It's the best value in entertainment out there. Internet access in China is affordable, and even if you don't have PC uh, or internet connection at home, in China you are never far from an internet cafe where you can use a PC for 30 or 40 cents an hour. The internet, moreover, has always offered content that's frankly a fair sight better than the fare that's available on uh, state-run television. Uh, you have your games and you have your movies and uh, from all over the world. China, with its notoriously lax uh, intellectual property uh, controls, is a place where on the internet you can watch the latest movies and watch the latest television shows from the world over pretty much as soon as they're available anywhere. It's practically irresistible and it's, it's no wonder to me that the for young Chinese people, the internet is the sine qua non of all sort of entertainment destinations. But thinking of the internet strictly in terms of entertainment, of greasy kid stuff, draws our attention away from its more serious side, and it's really this most more serious side that I want to focus on this evening. That is, its role as the de facto public sphere of Chinese life, where surprisingly critical viewpoints are increasingly being heard. The internet in China takes on a lot more political and social significance because prior to the boom in the internet, uh, China simply never had anything approximating a social sphere, a, a public sphere. There was, in other words, no lasting place, whether physical or virtual, whether ad hoc or institutional, where Chinese citizens could go to air their points of view, to exchange ideas in public, to sound off and be heard. There's an English word that, that, that people use nowadays in place of internet user. That's the word netizen. It's admittedly not the most elegant of neologisms. I'll grant, um, I, I think it's uh, reviled probably properly by most of the people who use it, by many language purists, but the Chinese word for it, wangmin, translates perfectly into netizen. And I think there's a good reason why the word is in such wide use in China, it really captures this implicit sense of citizenship with all its political implications. In the word as used in both English and Chinese, the sense among Chinese internet users of belonging to a polity, belonging to a political community that has become one of the more salient features of Chinese internet culture. Popular media outside of China have tended to focus in coverage of the Chinese interest, internets on the issue of censorship. And again, I want to emphasize that that should not be at all surprising to us, nor do I think that this emphasis is necessarily misplaced, because after all, they are the frontline practitioners of the very freedoms that they hold so dear. This emphasis in reporting, though, has reinforced an impression that China's internet culture has languished under the heavy hand of a censorious regime, and this perception really blinkers us to some of the complexities of the Chinese web. It's gotten to the point where, as one academic has pointed out, the Great Firewall of China has become a kind of Iron Curtain 2.0. It's, it's really a, a symbolic dividing line between a free West and an autocratic East. This gentleman's name is Lachman Sui, and I believe he's at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. I think it's a terrific coinage. 
In the minds of many Westerners, though, China and its notorious internet controls have become inseparable. You think of China and you think of its fettered internet. Well, the Chinese internet is censored. Make no, no bones about that. And that fact should not be either dismissed lightly or ignored. Numerous popular internet services remain blocked in China today. At, that moment, at this moment, that includes Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Flickr, and many, many blogs. The Great Firewall makes necessary bothersome and often very slow routing around through proxy servers or VPNs. The older ones among you can ask your children what those are. And with domestic Chinese websites required to maintain vigilance against pornographic or politically sensitive content. Whether we agree with them or not, Chinese authorities have their reasons for wanting to control content on the internet. They boil down to the belief that unfettered access to information leads invariably to social instability, the great boogeyman of the, the Chinese uh, political uh, landscape. The idea that freeing up expression would result in kind of anarchic chaos instantly would probably strike most of us as preposterous. But it's an argument that makes implicit sense to many Chinese elites. They believe that China's fundamental, fundamental level of sophistication, its sujir, remains very low and that the masses are easily whipped up into a frenzy by rumor, by innuendo. It's an article of basic faith with not only the Chinese Communist Party, but with most Chinese that social stability is a basic prerequisite for economic development and no one challenges the primacy of economic development. So living with censorship then is sort of the people's end of a tacit social contract. Chinese netizens, however, are increasingly aware of the power that they wield and more and more they balk at being muzzled. Witness the outrage earlier this year when Beijing pushed to have mandatory internet filtering software bundled with every personal computer sold within the boundaries of the People's Republic of China, the so-called Green Dam Youth Escort software. Now, don't think for a minute that Beijing backed down because of pressure from the American politicians and business leaders who had voiced their objections in strongly written letters. You know, it was, it was the outcry. It was the outcry online uh, from self-organizing Chinese netizens that got this half-baked initiative shelved, at least for the time being. Does this mean that the floodgates of free expression in China are going to fly open anytime soon? Almost certainly not. When in 1789 James Madison penned the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the US Constitution, enshrining freedom of speech and the press in the American political culture, and when it was ratified two years later, information crossed land at only the speed of a galloping horse, crossed water at only the clip of a sailing ship. There was, in other words, not all that much pressure behind the proverbial floodgates. And when they opened them up in the late 18th century, not much more came fluttering out than some pamphlets. And even those contained some truly radical, world-changing ideas, dangerous, if not deadly, to the status quo. I'm thinking, of course, about Thomas Paine and uh, common sense. From the perspective of the Chinese leadership, surely you can see that opening the floodgates now means something different in an era of near instantaneous communication, near universal literacy, a time where a quarter of the population is now online, a time when half the population 
carries with it in its pocket or in its purse a device that's capable of transmitting text, pictures, even video around the world instantaneously. There is a lot more pressure built up behind those floodgates. As I've noted, many, if not most, elites in China buy this notion that opening those floodgates would plunge the country into chaos. These include many perfectly intelligent and otherwise liberal-minded people. I should add that I actually have come to kind of believe there's the possibility of such uh, anarchy where the floodgates to be too quickly flung open. And I've come to, to believe that you know, a uh, measured opening of the uh, gates may be a more wise approach. But lay aside for now our suspicions that these kinds of fears have been drummed into heads of Chinese or maybe even drummed into my own head by a self-interested party that's determined to hold power. And that suspicion may, may be entirely plausible, but a truth that we cannot ignore is that half of the Chinese people alive today have distinct living memories of such periods of chaos. I'm thinking, of course, of the great proletarian cultural revolution of 1966 to 1976, and I think, in, in the eyes of some, even the, uh, the chaos of 20 years ago in Tiananmen Square, in which China very nearly careened back in 1989. In spite of censorship, China's internet as the public sphere continues to grow in importance. It's important to realize that there is a lot of criticism of the party happening on the internet today. We should not believe that it is uh, so closed off to, to any criticism of the government that, that no longer happens. It seems that right now that every month there's an, another high-profile instance of leaders bowing to the will of this newly empowered netizenry. Sometimes people power on the web seems to be a real force for justice. In November of last year, for instance, there was a customs official who was dismissed from office and punished after he attempted to molest an 11-year-old girl in a restaurant in Shenzhen. It happened that his, his mischief was caught on camera by a security camera, and somebody very much on the ball took that security camera footage, uploaded it to a site called yoku.com, and it was seen by literally millions of people who quickly identified the offending official and had him uh, give him his comeuppance. Earlier this year, when a young masseuse in Sichuan province, a woman named Deng Yujiao, was accused of murder for stabbing to death an official and wounding another man who had allegedly made unwanted sexual advances on her, popular online outcry in her defense was so vociferous that she was let go. There was little doubt that, that this popular outcry was precisely what was behind the court's decision to suspend her sentence. Uh, we might read this as, as, as sort of, you know, all good things, right? China's internet users flexing their political muscle as they've been doing as far back as 2003 when they helped to really uh, dismantle the onerous uh, internal passport system, the, uh, the hukou system of internal controls that prevented rural workers from easily migrating to, to the cities. Lots of good has probably been done, but this bottom-up transmission mechanism the growing ability of internet public opinion to have an impact on policy, it both encourages me, as it has in the examples I've just given, but it also really profoundly worries me. 
It encourages me because while it's obviously no substitute for institutional participatory channels and while it remains largely reactive and ad hoc, it does look to be leading toward a more deliberative system. Officialdom in China, from its pinnacle of power in Zhongnanhai in Beijing, down to the lowliest uh, party functionaries in the counties and in the villages, now share a deferential respect, if not a flat-out fear, of public opinion, the measure of which is based almost exclusively on online sentiment. But it worries me for the following reasons. One aspect of its darker side involves the extra-legal online activities taken up by netizens from the patriotic hackers who leap unbidden to the defense of China's evidently easily bruised online honor to China's now infamous human flesh search engines, the sinister sounding name for China's particular brand of online vigilantism. Uh, human flesh search engines, to, to, to explain, are, uh, we, are situations in which netizens are mobilized, mobilize themselves to identify and publicly attack and humili humiliate putative wrongdoers. These guys have at times gone way too far fingering innocent people or flagrantly trampling on basic privacy rights of people. But I'm especially worried about how popular online opinion may impact the most important bilateral relationship of this century. And this takes me back to our main topic tonight. Today, Chinese aren't just talking to one another online. They're interacting with the rest of the world. And particularly with that other dominant segment of the global medicinery, people in what I call the Anglophone internet, the English-speaking internet. In the eight, what is it, eight months or so since Barack Obama took office, Sino-American relations have been on pretty solid footing. Prior to the election, Beijing had made no secret whatsoever uh, of its apprehension over a possible Obama victory, but after November, we saw one of those rare, nearly friction-free transitions without the need for the initial China bashing and then the backpedaling and the, uh, you know, the, the wink, wink, nudge, nudge that we've gotten so accustomed to. Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton, uh, normally quite outspoken, and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who is and has been for the last 20 years probably the most outspoken dragon slayer, anti-China person, were conspicuously quiet when it came to human rights issues on their respective trips to China. The president himself sounded all the right notes in his kickoff address at the Strategic and Economic Dialogue in Washington, talking about the centrality of the bilateral relationship and its importance in the coming century. And Beijing, for its part, uh, has been focusing on common ground as we tackle our shared financial crisis. It's offered praise after a fashion even for Obama for his uh, balanced and measured response in July to the ethnic violence that shook Urumqi. Sure, we've had a couple of little tiffs on trade most recently. This latest thing, the 35% tariff on auto and light truck tires. But in fact, nothing has really roiled the waters seriously since 2001, since April, when the uh, EP3 spy plane collided with a Chinese fighter in, in early April of 2001. A few months later, September 11th happened, and suddenly, both Beijing and Washington had reason to sweep potential problems in the bilateral relationship right under the rug. China was an important ally 
in the U.S.'s global war on terror. But beneath this relatively calm surface, I would submit that people-to-people -people relations have deteriorated very, very badly in recent years. This relationship, which I hold to be as important as the more visible bilateral relationship, the more visible diplomatic relationship, continues on a dangerous downslide. Unchecked, I fear that this decline will strain the political relationship and constrain the policy choices of both state actors. There is no easy fix for this. There is no reset button. For most of the 30 years since China's reforms began, Chinese and American civilians really rarely met face to face in any significant numbers. When encounters did take place, they were typically stage-managed events involving curious, civil, painfully polite participants organized by sister city arrangements or by friendship associations, trade delegations, cultural exchanges, academic exchanges. We really weren't talking to one another. We were getting to know each other in a most casual and polite, artificial way. In the last decade, however, two changes would set the stage for an altogether different kind of encounter. One has been the tremendous growth of the Chinese internet. Ten years ago in 1999, China had about 8 million internet users, and today, as I've said, it boasts 338 million internet users. The other major change has been the expansion of English language education in the secondary education system, and it's even reaching down now into the primary education. It's compulsory in many areas. The number of people who are at least capable of communicating in written English has grown very, very high, and there's a significant overlap between the demographic groups who study English and the ones who use the internet. In other words, they have the means to communicate the internet and the ability to communicate with their language skills. What was missing was a catalyst for communication. What caused them to actually begin communicating came to us in March of 2008. It was in the run-up to the Olympics, of course, and uh, the approach to the Olympics Games provided that much needed but kind of dreadful catalyst. In 2008, as China stepped into the spotlight, into the international media spotlight in the run-up to the Games, Chinese were very naturally and understandably curious about what the rest of the world had to say about them, so had to say about their country. What they found would deliver a real shock to ordinary Chinese proud of China's accomplishments and confident of its essential benevolence in the world, many were utterly blindsided by the negative English language reporting they read online every day. Triumphs that were familiar to Chinese, the fact that hundreds of millions of Chinese had risen out of poverty, that the economy had grown by 10% annually for nearly three continuous decades, that China's showcase cities had become forests of modern skyscrapers with state-of-the-art infrastructure, vibrant cultural scenes. None of this was apparently deemed newsworthy enough by journalists who many Chinese felt were fixated on human rights violations, fixated on Beijing's cozy relations with regimes that Washington finds abhorrent, and by the fundamental threat that China's rise seemed to pose to the American livelihood, to jobs. Americans, for their part, were surprised to find such a high level of support for a regime that so many of them believed to be repressive, corrupt, 
and downright totalitarian. Indignant citizens joined battle online. When rioting broke out in Tibet in March of 2008, and as controversy dogged the Olympic torch as, it's made, as it made its way from Athens to Beijing, Chinese and Americans went at it as a brutal slugfest in the comments sections of, of news stories, of blog posts, of YouTube videos even. What had been low-intensity skirmishes fought by a politically-minded few escalated into a bruising, frenzied, people-to-people -people brawl that continues to this day. They fight over a long, long litany of issues. Tibet, Taiwan, Tiananmen, trade, internet censorship, religious freedom, Myanmar, Darfur, Xinjiang. We could keep going. Sanctions on Iran, on carbon emissions, much, much, much more. The first real people-to-people -people encounter brought this all in. The first real people-to-people -people encounter between the world's reigning and rising superpowers did not bode at all well. Many Chinese come away from these encounters more certain ever than ever that America, its government, its media, even its people, simply have it in for China. They're fearful of its rising power. They're stuck fast in a Cold War mentality that insists on identifying an enemy. Here in America and in other parts of the developed world, Chinese living in diaspora have told me time and again of an impulse to close ranks, to circle the wagons, to defend China, however critical they may be of their native country's many failings, against what they perceive to be unfair attacks by Americans. Americans, meanwhile, <coughs> see confirmation that Chinese, even those who've been in many ways westernized, are nonetheless locked into a dogmatically nationalistic worldview, the result of perhaps brainwashing by a state-run media and by a party leadership that has deliberately fanned the flames of jingoism. So you scratch the skin of even the most outwardly westernized and cosmopolitan Chinese person, and beneath you find an unreconstructed nationalist. It seemed to many Americans that out there in the land behind that fabled great firewall, one could imagine China was just teeming, swarming with Fenqing, the infamous angry youth who in the Western press uh, have, have been talked about so much, been the object of so much fixation. So the problem is each side seems very well prepared to believe the very worst about the other. You see the irony here, right? This is the internet we're talking about. This is that marvel of communications technology that so many of us believed would bring down barriers, would usher in the death of distance, all that global village good times. Instead, it has made us ever more fractured. It has made us ever more tribal. And that's not just true of international relations. It's true in America, within America, too. Nowadays, you only read the political blogs that, are, that happen to be uh, on your side of, of, of the aisle. Nowadays, we are ever more tribal. We do not talk to each other uh, cross-partisan, and we certainly do not talk to each other very well uh, across political boundaries. Anyone who's spent time online knows that political discourse, polite political discourse, is a very, very rare thing indeed. Even the, when the topic at hand isn't particularly politically charged, 
there's still a, a woefully low signal-to-noise ratio. It's terrible out there. It's no surprise, then, that a discourse so freighted with emotionally intense issues like China's and the United States should draw its share of extremists from both sides. Listen only to those shouting the loudest on each side, and one could very easily conclude that this is a war between red guards and rednecks. Yet, even when we strip away the most strident voices on both sides, the chasm that separates Chinese and Americans just doesn't narrow appreciably, at least not from where I sit. As people, we now really stand nose to virtual nose, but we are not anywhere close to seeing eye to eye. This is the danger. Why does this matter? Why does any of this matter? As long as the bilateral relationship's healthy, should it matter that we don't get along? It does matter. It's no longer just in the Western democracies where popular sentiment percolates up to policy. The internet, remember, has assumed the de facto status of the public sphere, and officialdom pays very close attention to shifts in public opinion as manifested online. On some issues, Beijing is already coming under tremendous popular pressure to take a harder line with the United States. It's forced to craft responses to, for instance, the Obama administration's recent imposition on, of tariffs on car and light truck tires that make it look like Beijing's not just bending over and taking it. Let's not forget that the best-selling book for the first half of this year was the multi-author Unhappy China, which though, to be sure, it had its fair share of detractors among Chinese netizens, rode to popularity largely on a surge of anti-Americanism. To get a clear idea of what might be in store for us, I ask you to think back 10 years. This is why popular online opinion matters. In May of 1999, I don't know how many of you remember this, American smart bombs destroyed the Chinese embassy in the Yugoslav city of Belgrade. It was something I'm personally never going to forget because that event basically ended my association with the band that I had co-founded a decade earlier, Tang Dynasty. Back then, China had only about 8 million internet users and already the Chinese web was boiling over with indignant rage, teeming with all sorts of conspiracy theorists and of course, with patriotic hackers. Imagine now, imagine for a moment what would have happened had there been 300 38 million as there were as there are 10 years later another instance another incident like Belgrade happening today whether it's between China and Japan or China in the United States or, or what have you whether it's accidental or it's a sinister imperialist plot it wouldn't just be worse for the greater number of Chinese who are online it would be it wouldn't just be worse because of the advent and ubiquitous spread of social networks and other really high, highly viral forms of social media. It wouldn't be just worse because of the advent of internet video. It would be far worse because on both sides of the Pacific, there are internet users ready to think the worst and spoiling for a fight. The next time something like this happens, or another similar international incident involving the US, Japan, anyone else, Beijing is going to have a hell of a time trying to rein in popular nationalistic fury. Bet on it. Secondly, it matters because some of the most important challenges we as people face today are transnational in their impact. They're bottom up, 
They, they demand bottom-up solutions. They do not work with just top-down solutions. They require the Americans and the Chinese to be on the same page. Not just the American and Chinese governments, but the American and Chinese people to be on the same page. Climate change is what I have in mind. Climate change is just such a challenge. I think many of us took some encouragement from the UN uh, summit recently that Ban Ki-moon called, where both President Barack Obama and <clears throat> Chinese President Hu Jintao addressed the UN. And Hu received plaudits in many quarters for his apparent commitment to aggressive, though non-specific non targets in lowering carbon intensity. But none of this is going to mean a thing without popular buy-in. Environmental consciousness at an individual level, at individual behavioral change, these are essential if we hope to avert disaster, especially for people of the two countries now contributing most to the problem. What I see happening now, though, really alarms me. On the one hand, we are seeing a rise in popular environmental consciousness in China. This summer, we saw several high-profile pollution-related demonstrations that erupted across Chinese provinces after a lead smelter in Shanxi province, for example, poisoned several children when a manganese plant in Jiangxi province caused the lead poisoning of, of several Chinese children. There were large demonstrations about it. it was in Hunan province. On the other hand, we're also seeing, though, a countervailing defensive sentiment on the rise. A growing number of young Chinese now see Western environmentalism as just the latest in a long line of sticks that the West uses to bludgeon the Chinese, to keep Beijing down. They've been browbeaten again and again by this, this, uh, this incessant American media drumbeat about uh, China's polluted cities, its coal addiction, and these young Chinese are becoming increasingly galvanized. They're resentful of a hypocritical U.S. that has gorged itself for a hundred years at the trough of fossil fuels. And they insist that unless the developed West bears what they think are its fair share of the costs, the Chinese won't be begrudged their turn at the trough. The number of SUVs I now see prowling the streets of Beijing, including a shocking number of Hummers, appalls me. When, and when I ask people why they drive such conspicuously wasteful vehicles, they almost invariably point fingers right back at the American consumer. These full-size truck and SUV habits of theirs make China look pretty inconsequential when it comes right down to it. Beijing and Washington may be getting close to an agreement as we move toward Copenhagen, but Beijing might find it increasingly difficult to sell this program of sacrifice for the greater global good to ordinary Chinese if enough of them believe that the burden of responsibility is going to fall too unfairly on the shoulders of the Chinese. Reflect on that. So what can we actually do? I guess that's really the heart of the matter. What can we do about this? For Americans who would seek to improve the relationship, again, I'm afraid there are no simple solutions, no reset button, not even a Control-Alt-Delete. Papering over what are profound, irreducible, very basic differences is not the answer. Sweeping that stuff under the rug just doesn't work. What's really troubling for me, though, is that I know so many Americans, and, and really, I, I, I know so many Americans and other Westerners, too, who have, you know, a liberal, open minds. I don't mean politically liberal, but who, you know, whose mindsets are, 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 are open. 
have a desire to improve understanding of China, who read the, the, the stories about China as they appear in the mainstream press, who may have maybe even traveled to China, but who, for whom the beliefs, the behaviors of their Chinese counterparts are still utterly baffling. How could so many people see a single-party authoritarian state as preferable to a multi-party democracy? Why are so many Chinese people unable or unwilling to distinguish criticism of the Chinese people from criticism of the Chinese state or the Chinese party? Why do Chinese seem so just maddeningly intransigent when it comes to issues like Tibet or Taiwan? Why are so many of them, even when they seem so westernized, apparently content to live under a regime that's so censorious, that's so intrusive, that's so paternalistic, so downright repressive sometimes? It comes down to, why don't you Chinese hate your government as much as I think you ought to? Conversely, it troubles me that I know so many Chinese with the same kind of curiosity, with that open-mindedness, those, those kind of uh, curious instincts and uh, basically friendly dispositions toward the West and everything that it stands for, who still just can't understand Western attitudes and the behaviors that they foster. Why, they wonder, can't they see that their own media, the American media, is a monolithic tool of Western power that maintains a stranglehold over Westerners through the illusion of freedom, as I've heard some argue? Why can't Westerners and Americans in particular acknowledge the irrationality of the sense of threat that they feel at China's rise, which is so obvious to many of my Chinese friends from their distance? I want to make it clear, lest you think that I feel the burden of understanding or the blame for misunderstanding should fall mainly on Western shoulders, that I personally believe there's ample blame to go around. I'm speaking to a Western or largely Westernized audience, Midwesternized audience tonight. Um, but make no mistake, I mean, Chinese popular misapprehensions about the West abound. Uh, this is almost knee-jerk habit of blaming the Western media, for instance, uh, for biased reporting. And I think that that is intellectually lazy, quite often untrue, and often vexes me to no end. Beijing, as we all know, can be incredibly ham-fisted in the way that it handles its image abroad. Beijing has a real tin ear for how its silly slogans and pronouncements may play outside of China to the media, to ordinary Americans. At the heart of it, it's not just a matter of bad PR either. I don't want to dismiss this as just bad spin. There's bad policy. There's a lot of bad policy. People-to-people -people relations are obviously affected by state behaviors, but that's for another time. That's for another audience. We can talk about that again. There are enough impediments to improving people-to-people -people relationships without having to bring in the mischief of state actors directly. So let's take, for instance, internet censorship. The problem of internet censorship, aside from being a subject of contention between Westerners and some Chinese who perhaps surprisingly defend the practice, also makes constructive dialogue especially difficult. You have no idea how maddening it is. This is because the Western fixation on a free internet comes with the assumption sometimes tacit, sometimes just absolutely explicit, that the Chinese people we encounter, the Chinese people we engage and that we debate uh, are somehow intellectually hobbled by dint of the fact that they live in an information-controlled environment. Having your opinion discounted, 
dismissed outright behind because you live behind the so-called Great Firewall of China, believe me, it's been done to me before, is infuriating. It happens to me all the time by people who assume because I live in China, I have no way around the wall, I don't have access to real news like Fox. <laughs> of course, of course, most Chinese wouldn't see it that way, right? Many see the Western take on a given issue, let's say Myanmar or Darfur or Xinjiang or Tiananmen, take your pick, as only the Western narrative, right? And one which they assert took shape also in an information-controlled environment. This Western narrative is asserted with such maddening smugness, not only because Westerners believe their version of things to have been formed under conditions of near-perfect information freedom, which of course it wasn't, but because Westerners have monopolized this business of canonizing narratives for so long that they forgot what it feels like not to. They're unused to admitting any other possibilities. So step one, step one, if we're talking to people uh, in China on the internet, don't condescend. Don't, don't, don't act like just because they're behind the Great Firewall they have no, they're, they're brainwashed drones and they don't understand anything that's happening. Even if it sounds an awful lot like they're just parroting the party line, probably not a good idea. It doesn't really get you anywhere. It just never advances constructive dialogue. Step two, try and learn what Chinese people actually think when their defenses aren't up. Okay? Try to get an idea of how they feel when they are not under assault and feeling like they need to circle the wagons. You know, the conversations that happen when it's not believed that Whitey is prowling the premises are decidedly different. There's a whole lot more nuance to it. What you read on the web about the angry Chinese youth or all that American, anti-American invective, uh, it's not representative any more than sort of the hate-filled, race-baiting, you know, uh, jerks who post online are representative of American internet culture. In China, the online conversations take on a very different tone when the foreigner is not party to the conversation. So where do we find this stuff? We don't all read Chinese. Fortunately, there are a growing number of bridge blogs. These are people who, out of the goodness of their hearts and because they're dedicated to the cause, have translated important pieces of, of writings from China. Blogs, uh, comments left in bulletin board systems, uh, things that, you know, when Chinese people are talking, uh, to, to give you an idea of what the zeitgeist is, what they're, what they're thinking about. And uh, in Q&A, if, if anyone is interested, I can give you quite a number of sites that I could direct you to where uh, you could find very useful information about what the Chinese are really thinking. Um, step three, I think, is to read some relevant history. There's no getting around this. China is a country that is uh, freighted very much. It carries an awful lot of historical baggage. It's maddening to Ameri many Americans who I've encountered who find that anytime you want to talk about anything with China, suddenly your Chinese counterpart is giving you a long, dry history lesson. And it happens to all of us, but there's something to that. You, it really needs to be understood. And to save you all that trouble of having to listen to it again, Read a book. Figure out what really went on in the last 150 years between China and the rest 
Uh, and you'll get a very a, a, a better idea. <coughs> it's not something that Chinese people can easily shrug off, the burdens of history. Uh, there's a lot of patriotic education just rammed down the throats of, of Chinese young people. And a lot of it is a bunch of guff, constant reminders of China's victimization at the hands of the Japanese and of other aggressive foreign powers. But that doesn't lighten the load. It doesn't make history any less relevant to the Chinese. And you really need to, to understand it if you want to advance dialogue. What a pain. What a pain in the butt, though, to have to walk through all that history all, every time. So do yourself a favor, read a book. Reading the news doesn't really get it. The news is not a good venue to convey all that nuance. Reading a, a news story in isolation never gives you the whole backstory, unfortunately. You have to read an awful lot, so read a book. Um, if you really want to read a book, I would suggest maybe reading the one that I'm writing right now. <laughs> this, uh, this is exactly what I'm writing about. It's uh, my part, I think, my part toward addressing what I've come to see as this very dire problem, and I'm doing what I can to make my voice heard. Uh, why me? Why me? For no other reason than I'm someone who feels a real stake in this first. Somebody who is basically bicultural, I suppose that's arguable, but I feel basically bicultural. What do I mean by that? I, what I feel toward both China and America goes beyond empathy. It goes beyond empathy. It goes to identification. So that when the United States does something good and noble, I feel that stirring pride. I feel the same thing when China does something good and noble. For example, I was around in, in, in the Bay Area after the Loma Prieta earthquake of 1989 when San Franciscans pulled together in just enormous civic pride and they rebuilt their city. You know, and it wasn't looting. Everyone was just, you know, it was, it was something to see. Last year in May, when I saw my friends pile into their Jeeps with extra blankets and, 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 and sleeping bags and head to Wenchuan where the earthquake in Sichuan had killed 100,000 people. I felt this enormous welling up of Chinese pride. When I read about Abu Ghraib, when I read about Guantanamo, I feel deep shame as an American. When I read about uh, all sorts of, of unspeakable human rights violations that have occurred uh, under Beijing's auspices, I feel the same sort of deep national shame. So I guess I qualify. I guess maybe the, the truest test is that when I'm traveling in Europe and I see a group of American tourists and I see a group of Chinese tourists, I'm equally ashamed. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, um, now, I mean, my, my point is that I, I uh, I feel this very differently than I would about Russia or Rwanda or Peru or Poland. I'm, 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 a, I'm a Chinese and I'm an American and I, I feel sort of a very strong bicultural identity. And I guess I suppose that puts me in a good place. You know, a guy like me with an irrational urge to come leaping to the defense when either country is attacked is probably a good, good person to write something like this. I know my, my calibrations are far, far from object, objective, and I think that makes, actually makes me kind of uh, well qualified to do something like this. So what have I, I've decided to do with this book is to just grab every third rail I can, every hot button topic. I'm just gonna uh, write, and I have been writing, uh, in, in an effort to explain to the enlightened American layman what it is that the Chinese think, why uh, in many cases, there is merit to how they 
uh, approach these issues given the set of assumptions that they're approaching it from. I'm not trying to bridge every gap because the sum cannot be bridged, but I'm hoping to summon up empathy in the reader at least so they understand where the other side is coming from at the very least. It's not about objective truth, it's just about making a little bit of sense. See, I live, like a few other people like me, on an island in the middle of the chasm, the gulf that I've described. There aren't many like, like me. Problem with living on an island like that is that viewed from either side, it looks like a promontory of the other side. So I fully expect that I'm going to be roundly pilloried by both sides for this book that I write. And hell, you know, if I don't piss off people on both sides, I won't feel like I've done my job. <laughs> so there. Um, fortunately, I am a very optimistic person by nature, even though I know that this, you know, what all these bridge bloggers are doing is not reaching that many people. What I'm trying to do with this book is not necessarily going to reach all these people. I still feel like I have to try. And I take encouragement in knowing that Americans and Chinese, despite some very fundamental differences, are very much the same. Not all that they have in common is good. Let's start with the not so good. Both can be appallingly ignorant of what the rest of the world thinks of them. And as far as many of them are concerned, the rest of the world can just go to hell. These are two gigantic continental economies where most of the people really only speak one language. It's, it's, it's astonishing. Both have suffered at various points in their history, at various crucial points in their history, from this delusion that they can just turtle up, that they can... Uh, isolate themselves and go into a mode of self-sufficiency and forget the troubles of the world. That has got them nothing. This is a, a very big problem. And both, I think this is possibly their most dangerous characteristic, both feel like they've been singled out uh, for some special purpose. Both feel that they are uh, touched by God in some way. The Chinese and Americans are both fundamentally and I, I sincerely mean this, fundamentally decent people. They're very hardworking, both Chinese and Americans are. And I think this is especially true as I've come here to the Midwest. There's so much that I see in the warmth, in, in the honesty, in the sense of self of Nebraskans that reminds me so much of people from my part of China, from the Chinese heartland, which is sort of the Nebraska of China, Kunan province. Um, the, we are both very pragmatic people. We may be idealistic in some regards, but when it comes right down to it, we are both highly pragmatic people, and we both cherish a meritocratic tradition. We both believe that people should rise based on good work and on their, on, on their merits, on their personal merits. Uh, I, I think that Chinese and Americans are not doomed to an eternity of enmity. I have a lot of reason to believe that things could get much better. And I take encouragement, too, from seeing conversations that take place in the real world, not the online world, not the world where you're hiding behind the shield of anonymity, where nothing you say you are really accountable for, but conversations that take place face-to-face, -face because they tend to be a whole lot more civil, they tend to be a whole lot more polite, and you know, we find ways to agree, even if it's to agree to disagree. Thankfully, that remains the rule. And like it or not, in closing, the, the world that we live in is going to be, for a lack of a better world, a, word, a, a bipolar world. 
the next three or four decades, we are going to be living in a bipolar world. It's my sincere hope that this world does not suffer from bipolar disorder. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, if you have questions, you know, write them on the cards and get them to the ushers and we will uh, deal with as many as we can in, in the time that we have left. Uh, let me go ahead with a couple of questions that come from uh, the Thompson scholars. First, uh, what is China doing to solve the underlying problem of ethnic conflict? Not enough. Not nearly enough. I think that there's a, a serious recognition problem where uh, they are living in very, very deep denial about the existence of basic uh, ethnic tensions. They've, they've tried very hard to paper them over. They, they uh, hope that throwing enough money at them is going to make them go away. Uh, I, I believe that the greatest impediment is this uh, maddening paternalistic uh, ethos that, that really unconsciously is held by so many Han Chinese, this condescending uh, attitude they have that they believe to be benevolent but is, is frustratingly paternalistic. They, um, in, in popular media, minority nationalities are often sort of dismissively discussed as happy people who dress colorfully and love to sing and dance. I think that's, that's, it's, a, it's a fundamental problem and it's not being adequately addressed. Okay, the second question from the students, uh, do people in China believe that American opinion of China is represented by the most extreme views expressed on the internet? I think unfortunately they do. They are, like Americans are, willing to believe the worst of what the other side thinks. Uh, that seems to be my conclusion. Uh, when I talk to, to Chinese people, the conclusions that they seem to have drawn about American attitudes toward China uh, draw primarily on those most extreme, on, on sort of what I've called the redneck, uh, you know, contain China, constrain China, nuke China back to the Stone Age kind of attitudes. Okay, a first question from the audience. Uh, where would a netizen find the most constructive dialogue between Americans and Chinese on the internet? Constructive dialogues, unfortunately, are rare and far between, but there, there are some very good ones. I would uh, point you first to uh, a fairly new blog, very, very thoughtful. It's written by a, a guy by the name of Charles Custer, who incidentally is a hip-hop artist in China. Um, his, his, his site is called China Geeks, and probably the easiest way to find it is to, to just simply Google China Geeks, all one word, and you'll find it. The domain is Sun Tzu like S-U-N hyphen Z-O-O, -O, and that's his performing name. Uh, it, it's a terrific dialogue. He does an awful lot of bridge blogging, of translations of Chinese conversations uh, happening online. If you're more interested in sort of salacious conversations among Chinese people, not dialogues between Americans and Chinese, but um, if you want to eavesdrop a bit on what Chinese netizens are saying in English, I would recommend two sites, one called chinasmack.com, all one word, Salacious stuff. It's all. It's got a lot of uh, 
you know, sex and, and drugs and violence in it. But, uh, and um, one called China Hush. Same C-H-I-N-A-H-U-S-H. Um, another terrific site to get an insight into uh, what Chinese are thinking is danwei.org, D-A-N-W-E-I dot O-R-G. Danwei is one of the oldest and most popular uh, blogs written in English about China. Uh, it's a multi-author author blog run by a very good friend of mine named Jeremy Goldcorn, and uh, who's been in China for an awfully long time and speaks and reads and writes really terrifically in Chinese. Another question, uh, what topic do you find the most vigorous agreement on from both Chinese and American netizens? That's a very good question. I haven't thought of that. Um, agreement. I think everyone hates the French. No, <laughs> no, I, I, no that's, that's honestly not true. That's honestly not true. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's honestly quite rare to, to find people uh, in agreement. I mean, I guess I, I've been so fixated right now on, on the kinds of struggles that I've, I've, I've generally ignored um, areas where I've been able to tweeze out agreement. I mean, I suppose they agree that the Internet is fun, but that, that's about it. Until your book is finished, what history of China would you recommend? Oh, that's a very good question. I, um, I really like, for, for a very good survey of China from the, mid, from the Ming Dynasty in decline, that is, in, from about 1600 all the way through, the, uh, through, through almost today, I would read Jonathan Spence's The Search for Modern China. That's a, a, probably the best single volume uh, that, that would address these issues in a very intelligent and relatively ba balanced way. Uh, I really like that book. Does China have uh, the same generational divide in IT that the United States does? And if so, what does that mean for traditional Chinese regard for age and wisdom? Uh, the, the, the divide is possibly worse because at least uh, people over, say, 50 or 60 in the United States are at least able to type in their native language. They're able to enter text and that's not the case with people in their 60s in China. Um, there is no way for them not having learned the romanization system, which is the common way that, that China, Chinese, young Chinese people enter text. They're, they're kept, I mean, the digital divide by age is, is, is markedly more pronounced in China, I would say. I don't know whether that's really affected. Um, I don't know if there's a causal link between the digital divide and the a lamentable falling away of sort of the filial pious instincts that used to be, I think, so common to young Chinese people. I'm starting to see a lot of young people who uh, uh, see devotion to the aged as an archaism, as something that, that they no longer feel bound to, to hold up, whereas I see that as the most uh, precious tradition in Chinese culture that really you know, needs to be held on to. Uh, I really sincerely hope that it, the internet isn't contributing to that. Very good question. Uh, what role do Hong Kong and Taiwanese netizens play? That's interesting. Um, often you'll find points of, of very strong agreement between the, the Taiwanese and 
the mainlanders or between Hong Kong and the mainlanders, especially when a third party is involved. Taiwan, for example, along with China, uh, is irredentist about its claims on Tibet. Taiwan, along with China, uh, tends to be very, very upset about uh, Japanese incursions, about, for example, Jap Japanese occupation of a, uh, a chain of islands called the Senkaku Islands by the Japanese or the Diaoyudao Islands uh, that both the Chinese, to include the Taiwan Chinese and mainland Chinese, and the Japanese claim. Uh, there, there are uh, strong areas of agreement. On the other hand, uh, if you were to look just at, at the, the kinds of arguments they have over political systems, over whether the Taiwan political system could work in China, whether Hong Kong's LegCo could be expanded to parts of southern China where there's cultural similarity, ferocious arguments over that. Very good question. And that's, that's a book that could be written right there. Uh, will China help the United States in dealing with Iran? Um, that's a really tough one right now. It, it's, it's very hard to say. I think that on principle, um, China thinks that, that sanctions are going to radicalize Iran right now, that pushing them into a corner and leaving them no out will not, I, mean, I think their opposition isn't out of any unswerving love for Ahmadinejad. It's probably because they pragmatically do not believe that sanctions will work. And let's, let's face it, show me an instance where sanctions anywhere have worked. I think I, I've heard Chinese diplomats say that, say, show me a regime that has been brought down because of sanctions or where our primary goal has been achieved because of the impositions of economic sanctions. If you can show me such an instance, I will entertain the idea of agreeing on sanctions. Okay, a couple more questions. Uh, is there an equivalent to Sean Hannity and other Fox-like drummers in Chinese popular culture? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> there are Glenn Becks and, and Rush Limbaugh's and Sean Hannity's and uh, all the rest of those asshole blowhards. I'm sorry. <laughs> And they spew the same sort of uninformed, ignorant nonsense. Um, and it's a very sad thing. But uh, I, I, you can quickly you know, tune them out, fortunately. And none of them have, have really kind of drawn a really strong populistic following, uh, fortunately. Uh, talk radio, fortunately, if you're driving long distance in China and you listen to talk radio, you're more apt to hear people uh, trading stock tips than, than talking about, um, you know, the evil imperialist Yankee plot. So, okay, and the final question, uh, what would you advise President Obama to know about China as he prepares to visit? You know, I actually wrote a white paper for the Obama campaign uh, and delivered it to, uh, and he actually used a couple of lines out of it. So. Um, not having that in front of me, I can sort of uh, talk to a, a few things. I think he's actually done a terrific job. I think he's done a very, very, very good job. Um, and I have every confidence that when he comes to China in, in November, he will continue to show the so same sorts of uh, pragmatic statesmanship that he, that are his stock and trade. What he probably should know uh, coming here is that China is very, very much willing to play ball. 
there is no threat that China is going to disrupt the system by uh, by, by refusing to show up at, at the uh, at the auction of, of treasury notes. Um, there is no nuclear option being weighed. Uh, that I mean, look, I, I'm I'm convinced that there's an awful lot of back channel chatter already happening. When I look at this this tire tiff, I'm absolutely convinced that. Um, China's very, very measured response to this uh, by taking, rather than taking you know, action by actually slapping tariffs on autos or on chickens, they kick the can down the road by giving it to the WTO, which means it won't, you know, it won't be looked at for months. It was a non-response to this, which means, I mean, maybe I'm, 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 I'm a, a little too politically attuned or whatever, but I, I suspect that there was some quid pro quo, and we don't know what that is yet necessarily, but I, I, my instinct would be to say that that will mean uh, he'll give something when he comes in November. He will, he will uh, do something like uh, they will jointly announce targets for Copenhagen that are quite acceptable for Hu Jintao, and Obama will openly endorse them. It'll be something like that. So I would suggest that um, if they haven't already worked out the quid pro quo over, over um, Obama's uh, tire thing, that, that they, they focus that on, on climate change issues and use that as a, a bully pulpit, the, the two of them standing side by side and announcing something would be very, very good. Please join me in thanking Kaiser Quo. Thank you. <laughs>